uh, when we talk about rent stabilization, rent control, are we really talking about something different? And I think the real answer there is no. Uh, there's no sort of technical difference uh, in most cases uh, between rent stabilization and rent control. Uh, in general, rent stabilization is used to sound less scary. Uh, rent control can often sound sort of uh, uh, scary, sound like you know Soviet um, style uh, policies while rent stabilization sounds more market friendly. But uh, in 99% of cases, there's no technical difference. Uh, New York City is one exception to that because they do have a, in a program called rent control and another called rent stabilization. So just wanted to get that out of the way. But obviously what we're talking about here is a program that regulates how and when a landlord can raise uh, rents on tenants. Uh, and uh, in the US, over 200 jurisdictions, uh, so cities, counties, including two states, uh, California and Oregon, have some type of rent control policy on the books. This is These policies have become in sort of waves over time. You know, the first wave uh, we see sort of uh, at the beginning of World War I. We also see price controls in World War II, and then waves uh, in the 70s as well. Uh, and then obviously more, more recently, in the past maybe five years or so, uh, rent control has made a big uh, comeback in many ways. And as we see St. Paul uh, and, uh, and, you know, obviously Minneapolis, as well as California and Oregon uh, as states sort of represent kind of the, the leading edge of this new wave. So why, uh, why rent control? One of the, one of the uh, big pieces of a report was sort of to establish what are the conditions that renters have faced uh, in Minneapolis uh, over the past 10 years. And, and here's what we know, here's what the data says, that rents have uh, consistently risen faster than incomes for, uh, for low-income tenants and in particular rent, um, tenants of color. Uh, so what we see, uh, obviously here, and what jumps out is that lower income tenants have seen the largest rent increases uh, between 2006 and 2019. Uh, in addition, right, housing affordability is a function of both uh, what's happening to rents and what's also happening to incomes. So simultaneously, as low income tenants have seen the the largest rent increases, they've also seen very little, if any, real growth in terms of, of income. You know, after you account for an inflation, uh, 3% over a 13-year period compared to a 41% uh, average increase in rent, right? That's not going to cut it. Um, and we see sort of opposite trends, right? If you move up to the top, uh, we see high-income renters uh, having income gains that are far surpassing um, uh, rent increases. Um, and so you can see this is what's contributing to uh, income inequality and uh, why low-income renters in Minneapolis are, are struggling so much uh, to pay the rents. Um, we also see a stark view when we break this out by race as well. Uh, when we look at uh, Black renters in Minneapolis uh, over the same time period, uh, again, after controlling for inflation, rents are higher than they were in 2006, while incomes uh, are, are down. So again, both of these things are contributing to uh, the housing crisis uh, in, in important ways. A uh, second major uh, reason for uh, you know, the housing crisis that we're dealing with now is that federal investment for public housing and other programs has decreased significantly since the 1980s. So if you look at uh, HUD's budget here, um, uh, has dropped significantly. So if you look at uh, the HUD budget as a share of GDP, has dropped 82 percent um, since the late 70s, or maybe that's the yeah since the late 70s. Um, and lastly, of course, uh, as as I'm sure many of you are aware, most of the new housing that is getting built uh, is market rate, and it's not affordable for low-income tenants. So if we look at uh, housing production in the Twin Cities, 
uh, we see at least three times uh, the amount of market rate uh, as opposed to affordable housing. Uh, and if you look at uh, other research like by the Minnesota Housing Partnership, uh, they've done research that, uh, that says that once you take into account the conversion of previously affordable housing into market rate housing, that's actually resulted in a net loss of affordable housing. So long story short, uh, we are trying to bail out the ocean with a, um, with a shovel right now or with a sieve and it's, it's not working very well. These factors uh, I think are, are, are very important and um, are driving uh, a push among many places around the country, including Minneapolis and St. Paul to, um, to initiate their own rent control policies in order to prevent, uh, in order to you know, maintain some semblance of affordable housing. You know, the first question, of course, when thinking about a rent control policy is uh, what is the cap supposed to be? How are you going to uh, cap rents? Uh, and there's a variety of ways to do that. Um, what types of exemptions to the policy will be, uh, will be allowed uh, in terms of, you know, capital improvements, uh, taxes, you know, things like that. Uh, what types of buildings are covered by the policy? Uh, uh, next, what happens when somebody moves? So uh, if you hear the term uh, vacancy decontrol, um, that's, that's an important part of, of, a, of the policy design, right? What happens when a tenant moves out of their unit? Um, what is, the, is the landlord able to raise the rent more than they would otherwise? Uh, and I think lastly, something I want to mention is who enforces the ordinance, right? How do you make sure that landlords are, are in compliance with the ordinance, because that has a uh, a big effect on how effective right the the uh, the ordinance actually is. Uh, so when we look at uh, some types, some popular types of caps, um, the first is just a flat increase, right? Uh, we see cities like St. Paul, of course, pass uh, their three percent three percent cap. Uh, San Jose has a five percent cap cap, which basically says uh, a landlord cannot raise the rent on tenants above that percentage in a given year. It's St. Paul is 3% no matter what, and San Jose is 5% no matter what. Uh, next, another common way to do it is to tie it to inflation. Uh, and usually this is uh, a, a measure called the consumer price index. So it measures sort of the general rise in prices, general. Uh, so if you hear the term inflation, oftentimes that's, um, uh, that means a consumer price index. Uh, and so San Francisco, for example, caps rent increases at 60% of the uh, consumer price index. So it has to be, again, lower than uh, the rate of inflation. Uh, cities like Newark, New Jersey, for example, will say you can't raise it above 100% of, of CPI. Um, another uh, method, and this is used by both the state of Oregon and the state of California for their programs. Uh, and these are sort of, these are much looser caps. So they basically say, so the state of Oregon um, has a cap that says it's CPI plus 7%. So it can vary, uh, again, both of these can vary in a given year based on how high or low uh, inflation is. Uh, so in 2019, this would have capped uh, Oregon rent at about 10% growth year over year. Uh, and lastly, uh, NYC uses a, uh, basically the rent board takes into account a variety of, of factors based on um, the, the housing market, costs of labor, costs of uh, renovations, um, net income for landlords and things like that. And they do uh, kind of a, 
kind of do their own calculation. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, I didn't put that on here, oftentimes it's around two or 3%. So it's, it's, it's also tends to be a very, uh, a relatively tight cap. The next thing to consider is what type of exceptions you want or what kind of uh, um, exceptions there should be. Uh, what, are, what are landlords allowed other than the rent? Uh, are they allowed to pass through to tenants? Uh, and so this is, uh, these can be things like maintenance, you know, some maintenance costs, um, you know, some kinds of cost of living increases, utilities, property taxes, and sort of costs for big capital improvements. Like if the landlord needs to put on a new roof or a new boiler or something like that, uh, many programs allow uh, landlords to pass on some of those costs uh, to tenants. And, and again, how much they can pass on varies a lot from program to program. There's also kind of a built-in constitutional exemption um, that basically says that um, landlords are required to uh, have a reasonable rate of return on their property. Uh, as you are probably aware, the U.S. has very strong property rights, and so um, the rent stabilization can't be seen as sort of taking that property uh, away from uh, away from landlords. Uh, and so courts usually uphold that as a uh, as an exemption. Another one uh, is a little rare. It's called banked increases. Uh, some places allow, let's say your landlord doesn't raise your rent uh, up to the cap that one year, uh, they can bank in some places they can bank that percentage and then add that on later uh, at a later date. Next, of course, is which units are covered by the policy, right? Uh, a lot of policies contain carves out, carve outs for different types of, of units. Um, are single family homes and small properties covered? Are condominiums covered? Um, are buildings that are owner occupied? You know, if you live in a fourplex uh, or a duplex or a fourplex and you rent out the other units, does rent control apply? Um, places like California uh, have quite a few of these um, exemptions. Uh, next is, uh, is new construction covered? Um, and there are kind of two ways that cities do this. Sometimes they'll put in a, a, a set date. Uh, so for example, in New York City, uh, it's only buildings built before 1974. Uh, and, that, and that cap never moves. So new buildings can't be added to the program. Uh, the state of California does something different. They say it applies to buildings that are 15 years old or older. Uh, so as buildings age, they do become part of the program over time. Another major loophole uh, is for condo conversion. Uh, many programs allow, um, allow landlords uh, to basically take their units off the market, basically say, I'm going to convert my building to condominiums and uh, through different processes are then allowed to evict all the tenants uh, who live in the building uh, and then uh, turn the building uh, into condominiums. And this is obviously uh, a major issue, um, uh, especially in places like California. It becomes very contentious and something obviously uh, tenant uh, activists uh, uh, are very worried about. And of course, we have a very, uh, very interesting example here. Uh, in St. Paul is a major exception here. Uh, the ordinance doesn't have any of these uh, any of these loopholes written in. It covers all buildings, all types, all ages, anytime, anywhere, um, which has uh, a lot of advantages um, from the, the tenant perspective. Right, that uh, you don't have to um, guess whether your building's covered. If you are a renter, you're covered. It doesn't matter who the owner is. It doesn't matter what you know when your building was built. You know for a fact that you are 
covered um, by the policy. Uh, and so uh, from a tenant perspective, uh, it's hard to beat uh, the St. Paul policy for its simplicity um, in, that, in that sense. Uh, next is what happens uh, when the building, uh, when the unit becomes uh, vacant. Um, if you heard the term uh, vacancy control, uh, so, so this is often turned to uh, referred to as either vacancy control or vacancy decontrol. So vacancy control means that there are limits to what a landlord can do when the unit becomes vacant. Uh, uh, New York City uh, and you know, the work of, of, of organizers out there uh, had a huge win in 2019 um, as they were able to lobby for full vacancy control, meaning that uh, even if a tenant moves out of the unit, the landlord can't raise the rent uh, above above what the rent stabilization standard would allow. In the middle, there are some places that allow uh, the landlord, they can't take the unit all the way up to market rate, but they can you know, increase it by some amount. Uh, and then there's full vacancy decontrol. And this is kind of, uh, this is um, what, what exists in the state of California. Uh, there's a law in place that uh, mandates that uh, all units uh, can be, that the landlord can set the rent wherever they want. Um, they can set the rent uh, wherever they want, um, and then subsequent rent increases are still subject to the cap. Uh, but this is a way, again, to sort of, um, in many ways, sort of functionally take them out of the affordable housing stock, right? Because once you raise it up to, to market rate, it's not going to be affordable anytime soon. Uh, and I think la lastly, in terms of, you know, when we're talking about policy design is who enforces the ordinance, because this is obviously really important. Uh, it doesn't matter how strict of a cap you have if it's, if no one's going to enforce it if, if landlords break the rules. Um, one of the main ways uh, that uh, more robust rent control measures do this is by a rent board, uh, where uh, either the city or through elections will uh, appoint or elect a rent a board of seven or eight uh, people who will then um, adjudicate disputes and who will set sort of the day-to-day -day running of, of, of rent policies. Uh, most cities who do this also have rent registries, which means they, they actively track the rent uh, of each building. And so they, um, um, landlords have to get pre-approval if they're going to raise the rent. Um, uh, and so this is, is sort of the, the, the stricter form of enforcement. Um, the other type, obviously, is self-enforcement. Uh, state laws in California and Oregon require the tenant to initiate the, the claim. And so it requires the tenant to know uh, if and how their unit is covered, need to know who to talk to, you know, like, how, how do I even make a claim if my landlord's breaking the rules? Um, and uh, talking to uh, tenant organizers out in California will tell you, that it really depends on where you are, right? Especially if you're in rural areas or outside major cities, you can get judges who will just um, refuse to hear your dispute, even though uh, it's the law. And that's not an uncommon thing from what I've heard. So again, uh, rent board versus self-enforcement. Self-enforcement is obviously a lot harder to, um, a lot harder to ensure that uh, tenants' are, rights are being uh, respected. Uh, next, I wanna briefly touch on uh, some of the analysis we did on uh, what a program would do, what, what would be the economic impacts of a rent stabilization policy? You know, what, to the best of our knowledge, what does, um, what can we, what can we figure out? Uh, in order to do that, we had a development consultant, uh, Peter Brown, who's worked on 
you know, dozens and dozens of, of, of apartment projects, uh, knows how to cash flow these buildings, very well respected um, uh, um, by developers. And I, I, I say that just to say that we didn't do anything to cherry pick these numbers. We really did our best to see what would actually happen, you know, uh, according you know, to the best of our knowledge. And basically, um, our consultant said no, that these caps really wouldn't do much to, um, to really uh, make uh, housing unprofitable or, or sort of destroy the housing market. Um, just, a, just a quick quote uh, from our report that says, uh, this, part, this part of our study supports those comments illustrating that based on historic rent data, the average apart, apartment owner would not be affected by anything other than the most restrictive caps. Um, and these caps are generally more restrictive than, um, than, than probably even the one that St. Paul has. Um, caps as low as uh, 100% of CPIs or around 3%. Again, CPI fluctuates year over year, but historically the average is around 3%. Um, and at that level, uh, our, our study did not show really any, um, any real financial impact uh, on landlords according to our analysis. Uh, next, on the flip side, we asked um, what what kind of impact would caps have on renters? How would they benefit? Um, what kind of changes would would um, would renters see with these caps in place? And so this is uh, looking backwards. So we kind of did a simulation using rent data, saying if a cap was in place over the last twenty years, uh, what would um, what would sort of be the uh, the income? That tenants would have saved had rent control existed. Um, I'm not going to go over. There's a lot of different models here, um, but I'm just going to go over a typical model here. So, if if there was a cap, if there had been a cap on uh, on rent increases over the last 20 years, again around three percent, uh, the typical unit in our uh, in our model, the rent would be around 14 percent lower if there would have been a uh, a cap at CPI uh, and the typical household uh, during that time period would save on average $615 a year. Uh, so again, especially if you're a, a low-income family, that's nothing to nothing to sneeze at at all. And then if you add that over longer periods of time, that's that, that's real money. Um, and then obviously, the tighter the cap, uh, the greater the savings for um, uh, for tenants. Uh, 